Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us is, well, we've had him on the show before, Mike McCurry, former uh, press secretary to... Uh, and and I'll tell you, Mike. Uh, out of if anybody has been there for a decent amount of time, they always say their favorite press secretary to work with was Mike McCurry. So uh, we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit. We're going to take a short break, introduce you to the people that pay the bills, and we'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit. Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. With me is Mike McCurry, former presidential press secretary and the guy who invented the on uh, the, the on screen, the television uh, briefing. Is that right, Mike? That was all you, buddy. <laughs> well, yeah. Was that a good idea or a bad idea? That's that, my that's, question. <laughs> <laughs> if you had I, to do I, it I, over I, again. I'll tell you the quick story of that. When I was at the State Department for two years before I went to the White House, and we had online, uh, we had briefings that were on camera. And when I went to the White House, uh, for some reason, the custom was not to have any broadcast uh, news briefings there. And I said, well, that's kind of antiquated. So let's, you know, let's uh, make the briefing available. And it was a good idea, and it worked well for three years. And then in my career, along came a young lady named Monica Lewinsky. And <laughs> then suddenly the live, the briefing became a live television show every day. And I wish I had sort of said, no live TV, let's just make it something that you can record. It's a briefing. You know, it's like not, it's an ingredient of news. It's not news itself. Let's just, uh, you know, anyhow, I, I didn't get the chance to kind of ratchet things down a little bit. Do you think it should be? Yeah, I think I think, you know, it, it's a it's a briefing and it's it's a chance for reporters to get information, you know, to kind of like uh, question the, the, the press secretary, question those in, in, in authority. But then they need to go and check that information with other sources and report the story. And it should not be a live reality TV show. It should be something that's like helps people get better information at the end of the day. So a briefing is not the same thing as a TV show. And I think that 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 is a, a distinction that is not often, uh, you know, thought about much in Washington. <laughs> well, one could argue that not much thought is given in Washington, but that's, that's a, <laughs> we won't go there. Um, I, I find it um, that that's an intriguing um, observation because, yeah, it. I remember the first briefings I ever uh, attended, they were in the press secretary's office and we all just kind of stood and asked questions and we kind of talked and it would go on for a while, but it was, there was nobody that was, you know, there was no the press secretary wasn't trying to, you know, get his or her, you know, visage on TV, you know, uh, uh, being obstreperous and neither were, you know, and it wasn't a bunch of reporters trying to pose for the camera. It was an actual give and take. And I, yeah, that, that. you know, the nickname for that is gaggle. And yep. it was a, like a gaggle, you know, sort of like a, a bunch of geese gaggling around. And those were for me, 
the, the, the best times of the day because all the reporters would come into the press secretary's office there in the West Wing, you know, it, it, the real West Wing, not the one on TV. Yeah. <laughs> and they would all gather around your desk and they would kind of sort of they basically were they were saying, what's what are you what's the news today and what are we going to do and what are you guys going to do? And we we set kind of rules about the road for the day. You know what was going to happen. What was going to what was going to the day be like? And it was a it was a great informational thing because among I got to know what the reporters were asking about, so I could go get more information. I could get answers for later in the day when I did the official briefing. And then they would kind of like get a sense of what was going on at the White House and what are what are the priorities that you guys have today. It was a great way in which we kind of informally exchanged information. And I just don't know if that, you know, exists anymore. I, I think during the Trump administration, none of that existed. Right. And, you know, I think there's a little bit more of that kind of informal give and take, but it's it's a working relationship. You know, the public has a right to know the government has an obligation to tell and then working out how that happens is part of what we should be doing in government, I think. Yeah, that's well, to your point, I, I, I think what I find missing out of these is that is the give and take it was you I, and i think it was joe lockhart and there was hell it was even larry speaks and once said that you know we learn as much from you all as you learn from us and it helps guide uh, how the administration operates and that give and take is sorely lacking right i mean that's exactly correct i learned more you know i would hear the questions in the morning and kind of know what did I need to go unearth and what did I need to get more information about during the day? And it produced more information. I mean, I think that, you know, it's a critical thing, this, this process of keeping the media informed and keeping the public informed is something that drives process. Because when I would get questions in the press, in the from the press in the morning, they'd say they'd ask about any subject they, they had, I could then go back and tell the senior people at the White House, I'm going to get grilled today about this question. So we need answers. And then I would go to, you know, before every briefing, I'd go to President Clinton in the Oval Office and say, OK, here's here's what I'm going to get asked today. And here are the answers. And he would look at it sometimes and he said, well, that's just ridiculous. That doesn't say anything. <laughs> so I would say, well, that's that, that's the best we have is policy. And then he would turn around and call people. He'd call like secretaries of HHS and other people and say, well, Mike's got to answer this question and we need a better answer to the question. So it would actually force policy to happen. I mean, I was a, the great beauty of this was that it was this give and take between the press and the White House actually made policy happen, made, you know, decisions happen. And that, you know, is something I think we've got to figure out how to preserve. Yeah, I don't think it happens much that way anymore. It's a very well, one way. It didn't. Well, during the during the Trump years, it happened not at all because yes. they didn't do they didn't do this kind of briefing. I think it happens now. And I, you know, I think there is some. You know, I, I, I think the process of keeping the press informed, keeping the public informed requires, you know, more attention to detail on policy. And I think that does some of that does happen. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that, but I, I think that there's a. Um, and I don't know, you, you give me your opinion. We've had two White House press conferences in two years with the president. I think there needs to be him more. In fact, I find him to be far better at disseminating information than anybody else in his administration. Uh, I'd like to see him out more talking about the policies and explaining it because without him in front of it, there is a huge gap and we make horrible mistakes about what it is that they're actually doing. And some of the people that communicate to us don't communicate what he wants or his intent as well as he does. Well, you know, um, 
presidential news conferences used to be held in prime time and they were they commanded attention and then in the you know last century they basically the media stopped covering them so you could have a primetime news conference and then you wouldn't get covered you wouldn't get you know a guarantee that anybody would watch it and so i think they became less useful to the white house in trying to get an inf information across because in in because in part the media decided well they were less newsworthy they you know these were just uh, shows for putting out whatever the line of the day was the propaganda was and so we're not going to cover it anymore so i you know it, to, to me if the president wants to stand up and take time and answer questions i mean to me that's a newsworthy event the yes, problem is. is now the problem is there's not you know, there's no place you can go so to. You say that's our fault. We should respect it a little bit more. Well, that, that it's not your fault. It's the problem is that there's there's no guaranteed place to go to get that information. You know, it used to be we had, you know, uh, four major networks and they would carry something like that online live. And now we don't have that anymore. We got, you know, it, everything is splattered across multiple social media platforms and you know where you where do you go to get uh information that you can rely upon i mean that's a well it, you it, said a mouthful a there <laughs> <laughs> well i mean we have declining audiences we've got declining readership and circulation in major newspapers we've got local newspapers that are closing they can't make budget anymore I mean, where do people go to get reliable information that they can use to make decisions about what they think as citizens? I mean, it's a, a critical question, and I, I don't think we have a good answer yet. Well, I wrote a book about that. <laughs> right. That's why I raised it. Yeah, you, you got that one. I, I would like to see us uh, bust up media monopolies myself. I think that would help quite a bit. And I, and I, there are all kinds of other things, but I, I think part of the problem in our business is I, and I, it, you can, I mean, you've been out of this for a while, but when you were there, I mean, the first time I walked into the Brady briefing room, I don't even think it was called the Brady briefing room at that time. Um, I, when I first walked in there, the first person I met was Helen Thomas and she introduced me to Sam Donaldson. And I had met Sam on the campaign trail in 84. So this was like 1985 while they're, talking about the simpson Mazzoli Act. And um, it was Sam who said, Brian, you take a look at that first row in the Brady briefing room, in the, you know, take a first row in the briefing room, those seven seats. There's probably 200 years of experience there. Listen to every one of them. And then he said, you know, and, and Helen probably has 190 of it. And Helen said something smart to Sam. And Sam said, Helen, it's okay to have an unexpressed thought. And then Helen said, Sam, when it comes to you, you have a lot of unexpressed thoughts. And I didn't know where I was going in my life, but I knew at that moment I was in the right place. But it was but it was that today you look at that first row of the Brady briefing room and there's not that much experience. I think institutional knowledge in our business has declined tremendously. But I look across the aisle in the White House and see the same thing. So you tell me. Well, um your your Helen Thomas reference made a uh, brought back a memory. I, when I got to the White House, I'd, I'd go down, you know, I'd read the newspapers, get ready for the day, try to think about what was going to happen during the day, and I get to the White House at about seven seven fifteen every morning, and Helen Thomas would be there, sitting there waiting <laughs> for me. <laughs> and I learned that if I brought her some coffee and a bagel that would make the day go better because she was uh, determined to hold the White House accountable every day. And her job, as she saw it, and, you know, she went through, like, you know, she worked for United Press International, which then folded, which didn't exist. And so, but she was an institution at the yeah. White House. And people respected her because she worked harder than anybody else. 
And that, you know, as she held accountable every press secretary that she encountered and public officials by asking them tough questions every day. And I, you know, that role is kind of indispensable in our system that we don't, if we don't have that built in where, you know, an independent press that can come to hold accountable people in power, if we don't preserve that and and give that some sacred place in our process, then we are going to lose something. And I, you know, I, I, I fight for this all the time, saying that we have to have daily briefings, we have to have, you know, ways in which the press can encounter the public. I know it's annoying to those who are in power. You know, I know that uh, my colleagues at the White House sometimes said, you know, why are we being so nice to the press? And I said, <laughs> we're not being nice. We're just, we're actually just fulfilling our obligations. Right. And, you know, you had to make the case. You had to, and, and that, by the way, that's the role of the press secretary at the White House is to make the case to others in the White House why we have to be accountable and why we have to get good answers to questions. And I, I think we always have got to have someone who preserves that role. Yeah. And we lost that, by the way, during the Trump years. And I think we've yeah. regained it now. We've regained it under uh, Biden. I, think I, with I, I agree with that. I, 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 and I remember, and Mike, I don't know if you remember, but I remember the, uh, the night we all met downtown D.C. and you sat in a, uh, it was the White House Correspondents Association, WHCA put on a, a symposium with Sarah Sanders and yourself. And I saw you stretching. I don't know whether you, you, you would cop to it then or now, but I saw you bending over trying to get her to understand what her role was and uh, to, to bring her into that fold a little bit, but she never did. I, I never saw anyone in that administration who treated that job the way that you and others have treated it. Yeah, that was my only encounter with her. And um, I, I actually uh, spent a little time with Sean Spicer, who yep. was the predecessor. And he was a good guy, but he, you know, he, he, we, we got together and had coffee one time. He said, you just don't understand what I'm going through. And I said, well, yeah, I understand because I, you know, I go through the same thing. Yeah. You know, and your job is to like make them understand that, you know, you've got a very important role to play, but they just couldn't do it because why? Because there was only, there was only one person, the Donald, who was in charge of everything. And so there, nobody could speak for him because he was his only spokesperson. And that, you know, it, it, it's, you know, a president, President Clinton did me a great honor by letting me, you know, go out on my own and do a lot of other things. He gave me a lot of support. So I had two chiefs of staff, Leon Panetta and then Erskine Bowles, who would stand up for me if i said i need to get this information and i'm not getting good answers then they would pick up the phone and call people and hold people accountable and say you know we've we have an obligation to the public to get better answers to questions and so that rule was preserved uh because we had you know because Clinton, even though he not, not always had the greatest relationship with all the people in the press but he recognized the importance of the role. And I I just don't know whether that still exists, whether that ethic of public well, that's information what I was gonna ask. exists. I, I don't see that they, that anyone, and I, I will say that the Biden, Joe Biden, you know, I covered him when he was in the Senate. You could, you know, we roll up on scrums with him and sometimes he put his hand on your shoulder and go, yep, yep, it's a good question. I mean, he was always mixing it up with us but i don't know that since things have changed since you were there that the experience on your side on the government side is there that understands the role other than the president and he has far you know a lot of stuff on his plate other than well, the president who has that experience i don't know if they if that understanding is there on your side and the government side and i'm pretty sure 
it's not there on our side. Well, I, I think what's changed, like, now remember, as my daughter tells me, Dad, you, you know, you were a big wheel in the White House, but it was in the last century. <laughs> and, and, and so thanks honey <laughs> thanks honey but it's a good point because what's changed in that time is the availability of all the social media channels to go directly to your different audiences and bypass what we think of as the mainstream media and i think i think over time and this is not just trump and it's you know it, i think it's not just obama it probably goes back a ways but i think over time the white house white houses have become willing to say we've got our own way of communicating with the audiences we care about and we can go direct to them and we don't have to go through this filter of the public media that we need to otherwise go through. So I think I think what's changed is social media, which has become polarized and yeah. become much more opinionated, um, and and that has kind of drifted all of public communication into different channels in which people sort of sort out what they want to say in in different ways. And I I think that's a problem for us. Yeah, I think the I ability think the to ability bypass uh, that filter has helped, by and large, to polarize the audience. I think yep. that's a big factor in it. We're going to take a short break here, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about White House communicating with the press and the press communicating with the people, <laughs> as they used to say. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us again, Mike McCurry, formal, former press secretary to President Bill Clinton, and he's seen his fair share of uh, political battles. And we were talking about, uh, right before the break, um, Mike, about um, the what social media has brought to the table. Um, one of the things that I, I guess I want to uh, ask you is how do you think, do you have a, a prescribed solution as to how to deal with that? Or do you have any, or can it be dealt with? Or are we just screwed? <laughs> well, I think um, one of my bosses in life was Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Good guy. Moynihan had an observation. He said, i organizations in conflict become like one another it was his he called it the iron law of emulation that institutions begin to adopt the same tactics as they oppose each other he said you know think of navies think of football teams you know people you know they adopt the same tactics so i think part of the answer for those in the government has been, okay, if you have your social media channels in which you are spreading your information, then we need to have our social media channels too. And so we develop our ways in which we communicate using all the new tools that are available on social media. So we have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have other things, you know, none of which, by the way, I had to deal with in the 1990s because none of that was really relevant. But I think that's, you know, the answer now is that we are going to see a, uh, you know, kind of a proliferation of ways in which the government tries to get out information, public information through different channels. What is important is for all of that to be verified and for it to be authentic so that if you see something that comes from 
you know, your friendly uh, local government agency, that you know that it, it is accurate and true. And I think there's where the real dilemma lies, because people are not sure, can I rely upon and trust information that I'm getting from my government, whatever the agency is, local government, county, state, uh, White House, you know, is is this trustworthy information? And and that is where I think we have to do a lot of work. How do you build trust and confidence in information that you're getting from the people that you rely upon to make decisions that govern your life? You don't I mean, think Tucker Carlson had the answer to that? Well, no, no. In fact, in fact, in fact, he is he's a primary reason why we you know why people doubt what they hear yes because you know because if you can if you can spread mistruth and utter falsehoods and get people to believe it then how do they then believe when they're getting well i've true said important inf information yeah i i have said and i'll stand by i think that was a, what he did with the january 6th um videotape editing it the way he did was uh, traitorous to the ideals of the of the united states i was there i witnessed it first of all if it's a peaceful protest you don't have to climb the walls you take the stairs secondly it was you know i saw people beaten i saw i, I know that the crowd was whipped into a frenzy by the president and Ru rudy giuliani i walked with them they told me what they were going to do they said the president sent them to do it and then they did it and um, to have a guy, I don't know. And I, you know, I, I mean, all right, fine. I think I've met Carl Tucker once or twice. I don't know him. He wasn't there. And for people to take his word over those who were there and witnessed it, it's frightening to me that we've gone down such a slippery slope that what you say about how do you verify information, it's not only how do you verify information from the government, but how do you, who do you trust in the press? Well, I mean, that that it that is the I think the big question both for the profession of journalism and for those who are in the uh, business of public information and government. How do we build some kind of process in which people have a verifiable place in which they say, okay, I may have a lot of opinions, but I, 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 I need some facts. That, that, by the way, was one of Daniel Patrick Moynihan's favorite quotes was, we are all entitled to our own uh, Opinion. opinions, but not to our own facts. So, but, you know, what's, what's perilous right now is people don't know exactly where to go to get factual information. And to me, it, that is a resounding embrace of, of what we call mainstream media. The, or, the news organizations that pay and hire good people and, you know, let them go and cover the news and they get denigrated often. But those are the, the those mainstream news organizations are the ones that provide the facts that we need to uh you really keep our society together and hold it together and 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 are you including so Fox I, in that <laughs> I, well yeah i mean the, okay, i mean good. i i know some you know, i know some great people at fox news who uh are good reporters but you know i, I you know that organization has got its own troubles <laughs> and, and maybe out of business as a result of a dominion suit but uh you know <laughs> I, I think good reporters. Do you think that really? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, if they get like a ten billion dollar settlement thrown at them, I mean, that's going to be a, a problem for them. But, but my my point is, there are good people there who do good reporting, and you know, and they, we we need to rely upon people who do good reporting. We need to rely upon news organizations that put that reporting in front of the public. And we need, we need to discount and tell people to screw off when they 
you know, say, well, this is just, you know, fake news or, you know, that they, they denigrate the people who are actually reporting factual information. And we, we got to call that out and we have to be, you know, much clearer about we need and want and respect good reporting, factual reporting, the people who just tell us the news and, you know, then we can figure out what our own opinions are. Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, but that so to recap, you would get rid of the live briefing, put it on tape. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And then. Yeah. Second. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know. Actually, that that's a that's a very good point. The the mistake I made was to not put into place the rule that actually existed at the State Department, which is the briefing at the White House was taped, and then the reporters could go back and look at what was said, and then go get other sources and and then you know look and see what contrary information was out there and they they could report it. It was a briefing. It was not a live TV event. And that was the mistake I made was to not say that this is not live television. This is just basically something that you can tape and record and use for your reporting purposes because it's a briefing. It's not a, a TV event. Have you spoken to anybody in the White House since about that possibility? I, I mean, I've I've raised that and, you know, I mean, the general reaction I've had is, well, you know, you let the cat out of the bag and the cat's <laughs> going to run forever. <laughs> Have you talked to anybody in the current administration about it? Uh, no, I mean, no, I mean, I've raised I, ra I raised this with Jen Psaki when she was yeah. going. She had, by the way, she had kind of the same career path. I yes, did. She, she was at she the State Department and yeah. then went to the White House. And I said, if there's any way you can kind of like jigger the rules there, that would be a good thing. And I, I just think it, it, it causes so much conflict. It's, it's a fight that most White Houses don't want to have because it's not, you know, it just like cause a lot of acrimony between the press and the white house and nobody wants to buy a buy a fight that they don't want to right. lead or win <laughs> not not my circus not my monkeys type of thing correct correct <laughs> so let me ask you before we go to break uh, again to say i i've always liked um some of your stories from inside the white house what is i i don't know what's your favorite what's your most humorous what do you what do you look fondly upon? What is what is it that you go, wow, that uh, I can't believe I was there for that. And it doesn't have to be good or bad. It's something that personal or that you found amusing. Oh, I, you know, I, I mean, th there are so many, so many good moments and none of them have to do with any of the scandals or anything. But I'll, I'll tell you, <laughs> my single favorite, favorite moment was coming back to the White House. The White House press secretary travels on Marine One, which is the helicopter yep. that goes back and forth to Andrews Air Force Base, where Air Force One takes off. And we came back one night, um, just as a you know small uh, snowstorm had gone through, and Marine One landed on the south lawn of the White House. And we all got off, you know, because we, we were going home. It was, you know, fairly late at night. And we were at the end of a long day of trip. And the Rose Garden was covered in snow. And a bunch of us went out and said, we are going to make snow angels in the Rose Garden, which we did. <laughs> and so, and then at somewhere I got a picture of all of us doing snow angels in the Rose Garden Who was all late at night. <laughs> and it it was in it was you know that was kind of one of those magical moments that you get. Who who were who were all of us? Was the president involved in that? <laughs> no 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 no. He I mean he gets the the Secret <laughs> Service hustled him back to the residence. So this would 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 have been some some of the senior staffers, the people who kind of regularly travel. <laughs> Let me ask you this: Were you? I cannot remember. I remember I was in the Rose Garden that day. 
but for the life of me, I cannot remember who the press secretary was. Uh, 30 years ago, the Waco tragedy, when President Clinton came out and announced, you know, that things had, had happened. Were you there then? No, I was, that actually happened while I was still at the State Department. Yeah, so Dee Dee Myers Dee Dee was there. Yeah. Right. I remember that because, uh, you know, then later, remember when the Oklahoma bombing happened, the Murrow yes. building? Um, that was, I had just gotten moved to the State Department to the White House not uh, long before that. And I remember that very distinctly because, you know, the Murrow building blew up and we did a briefing. We had kind of a live briefing at the White House with uh, Janet Reno, who was the uh -huh. attorney general and others. And then two days later, the president was going to Oklahoma City to participate in some of the, uh, you know, uh, memorial events down there. I did not go because my wife was pregnant and she was about to give birth to my third child. And I remember so, so distinctly, I remember the uh, our, our uh, doctor came in and said, do you want to know that your boss is giving a live television press conference right now? And I was with my wife and I said, no, there's nothing I can do about that because, you know, I'm here and he's there. So, so Clinton, I have to tell you, Clinton called us on Air Force One on the way back from Oklahoma City. And my, she, he called because he, you know, someone had told him, well, Mike's son was just born in the hospital so he called to congratulate us. And my wife, who had just given birth, st stood up and got out of bed. And I said, what are you doing? She says, the president of the United States is calling. <laughs> so she stood up and talked to him. And, and, and I, you know, and I talked to Clinton, too, and, you know, said, thank you for calling. And nice of you to call, because he had called from Air Force One. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's such a memory of like, you know, the weird things that happen sometimes <laughs> when you're working in that job. Do you, uh, when it comes back to uh, that particular point in time, one thing I'll, I'll say, and I was critical of it then, I thought it was, I, I know it was an attempt to take responsibility, but Janet Reno was Clinton's third choice for the head of the Department of Justice. She came in after, what, two, three weeks after the, the, the siege at Waco. And that had been planned for eight months and coincided with a, with a uh, local newspaper investigation into the sinful messiahs, as Koresh called himself. And so I know that she only had the information that was given to her by the FBI and the ATF, and they had already screwed up both the raid and the siege. So she had no... I, I always thought it was honorable of her to take responsibility, but I always found it disingenuous because it, it, she did not plan it nor. And I think if she had had some, and, and look, it was planned on the, on the administration prior to yours. And why do why, why would you take responsibility for it? Well, I mean, she's a very honorable person and took responsibility yep. for it. And I, you know, she had a contested relationship with President Clinton, I think has been well reported. Um, but she stuck to her guns on things and so to speak. And uh, I, I think, you know, I, I think these, these jobs are very, very hard when a lot of things happened below your level you know, below your level of seniority or where you are responsible for. But someone has to be accountable and take responsibility at the end of the day. And, you know, and that that we see that all the time. There are a lot of things that happen in government where people screw up or they make a mistake or something. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's the senior person in the uh, in the line, chain of command who is responsible and they have to take responsibility and be accountable. 
and then they have to try to figure out how do you clear things up and how do you make changes and how do you, you know, make things work better. You know, that, that that's just, that's the story of government service. That, that, that's yes. what everybody have, goes through that. Have you seen, did you see the Trump White House? No one will. Be, <laughs> well, will be, I mean, I mean, it's but blame that, everywhere else. It's shift all the blame. I mean, the, that's what that's that's the dysfunction that happens that occurs when there's nobody accountable because everybody sort of says there's only one person who's in charge and that's you know the commander the 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 the, the, the donald the the one at the top and if and nobody else responsibility i know but if nobody else is responsible in the chain of command and has authority to make things happen then you get the dysfunction that we had over those last four years. I mean, it's, it's inconceivable to me that any rational person could believe that we should have another administration headed by that person. I mean, inconceivable. I mean, I, you know, I, I, yes, I know 80 million people, 81 million people voted for Hillary Clinton, 74 million voted for Clinton. I, I, I can't, you know, I cannot, think of a reason why any of those 74 million people could actually vote for Donald Trump again. To be president again. I can't, I mean, I mean, there's no rational explanation for that. Well, see, there's that, that's the operative word there, rational. I'll introduce you to some of my in-laws. <laughs> Rationality right. has nothing to do with the thought yeah, process. Yeah, but, but it goes to the heart of what we're talking about. Yes. Where do they get the information that they use to make that kind of judgment? What do they rely upon for accurate information that allows them to make smart decisions as citizens? Well, you know, wh wh where, where, are they, where are they getting their information that would allow them to think that this misogynistic, crazy, narcissistic person should be anywhere close to the Oval Office ever again? Where do they get that information? Well, I think that people live inside their own informational silos and they buy information that sounds like what they want to hear without right. Confirm confirmation bias. We call yes. that they, yes. they 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 are biased to information that confirms whatever they thought to begin with. Yes. And so since American journalism is tethered to capitalism and you buy things that you want, it makes it easier to confirm your bias. And that where do you get it? Bust up the media monopolies. Yeah, that's that's we're going to take another short break and we come back. We'll have some final thoughts. Stick around. Hey, just ask the question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page. J.A.T.Q. Podcast. That's J.A.T.Q. Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit. Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we are back. It is just the question. Uh, I don't know what it is. Hold on. Three, two, one. Hi, we're back. It's just ask the question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And with me is Mike McCurry, former press secretary to uh, Bill Clinton. And in the break, we were talking about family matters. But uh, and you all missed some great stories and I'm not going to share them. But uh, we'll ask uh, Mike is as we look going forward, if you had a, a crystal ball, if you had the ability to change anything, what would you change about the way the press operates? What would you change about the way the White House deals with the press? Well, it's a great question. I think I would uh, try Occasionally to Occasionally I get one. <laughs> I, I'd try to slow the, slow the pace down. I think there is too much demand for immediate news all the time, 24-7. And the respect that goes into saying... We want full answers to our legitimate questions, and you have a you know you have an obligation to give us the best information that you have to understand that that takes some time. 
it's not going to happen 24 7 it's not going to happen like you know with the snap of a finger and so to get people to sort of say there is a news cycle in which we will at two o'clock p.m today do a briefing that gives you the best answers that we have to all of your good questions but you have to wait for it that's what that's that nobody wants to wait for information anymore and yet you know that the temptation is to go out and blurt out anything you know sometimes even when it's not accurate and not thoroughly authenticated so i think give you know figuring out a way in which we make a pace happen that allows for people to get good questions together and good answers together and not everything has to be 24 7 on the news all the time that would be the single best improvement that I think we could make. On on the government side or on the press side too? On the press side too. You know, like we don't need to just, you know, have someone standing on the lawn of the White House going live when there's n actually no news to report. Uh, but you what know? are we going to fill the time up with? <laughs> well, that, well, that that is legitimately a problem. You know, yeah. the problem is that you got to fill this... 24 7 news block with whatever you know the wheat and chaff splatters around and you know and not all of it is worthy of being lifted up and put into news and, and so you know part of that is to cure the temptation of the audience to sort of say well i want to tune, tune in and watch what's going on right now and sort of, you know, say nothing is going on right now. So go watch something else. Go back to your soap operas, you know, <laughs> go back to watch, you know, watch something entertaining because there's no news right now that's worthy of reporting. I, we, well, we, we just like we, we, we want to be tuned in 24-7 to, you know, all the news all the time. And, you know, news is not happening all the time. Well, I mean, there's always news happening, but not in anything, not everything needs to be grabbing your attention at that moment. And so I think, you know, we have curating our your viewing and our listening as consumers of news that's that's something we have to teach ourselves that we yeah. don't have to like we don't have to be glued to media fox news all news all day long well you know and i two point i i agree with that because um i i i'm always honestly surprised when people say i just saw you in the briefing and i'm going you're watching the briefing. <laughs> I don't even want to watch the briefing. I'm in the briefing. And, right. And then what and also amazes me to the end to the point of you know confirmation bias, you will see, I will get people telling me what happened in the briefing who weren't there. And I was, and they'll get it wrong. But they saw one camera uh, showing one thing. And you don't, it's not reality, man. You don't really get to see what's going on in that briefing room just by, by seeing videotape or not understanding the questions and the, uh, and the predicate, you know, and, and putting it all in context, all of that is lost. So it, it does contribute to the, uh, as you said, the reality show, but it's not reality. Right. That, you know, to, to me, that would have been the, 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 Re the mistake I made was not to say you can record this it's available for broadcast but then you have to editorially figure out what is news here right. versus what is kind of reality TV because then you wouldn't have the theatrics that go on in that briefing room sometimes oh. both the press secretary and sometimes the reporters oh yeah you know, that was this week standing up and making a show and you know and then you got people who show up to you know pursue whatever cause they're going to pursue and if it's not live on television then you know there's no point in doing it so if it was all recorded and you have to edit it and figure out what's news after the fact um, dog <laughs> Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry. Hey, 
<laughs> hey, can you uh, hold on just a second? Yeah, or, or are we? Yeah, we're almost done, but I'll hold. I got it. <laughs> I've done the same thing. <laughs> we'll yeah. In. No, we have some people picking up some. Uh, we're we're running a little food pantry here, and so I've got someone picking up some stuff here. Um, so are are we kind of done? Yeah. The the last uh, last thing I'll say before where can we uh, if we want to catch you? Uh, can we catch you? Or are you going to be out in the garden? I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. I'm around. Uh, on uh, Twitter or uh, social media, if someone wants to, or are you active on social media? No, 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 no. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I do have a Twitter handle, but I don't really do Twitter very much. And and you're a wise man for not. Uh, so the, I guess the last question I'll ask you is, um, Mike, where do you see us in 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 2024? Um. <clears throat> I think 2024 is going to be, there are two different scenarios. One is we've got a country that probably does not want to have a contest between two people, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, that they they know and they, you know, maybe have different thinking about. But I think a large majority of the country would like to see new people come along. I think that is a scenario in which there really is a possibility that through our primary process, we get some new people and some new voices. So I would not discount the possibility that, you know, Joe Biden has a contest for the nomination. Donald Trump is clearly going to have a contest for the nomination. And we might end up with different choices than what seems to be the conventional wisdom now, which is a, a repeat of Trump versus Biden. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, it's a long time away and a lot of things will happen between now and 2024. Yes, yeah, several indictments and uh, the actuary table may take over for both of them. That's that's correct. Yeah, correct. Well, listen, Mike, thanks for joining us. Uh, enjoyable. Love to have you back. It's always good talking with you. I'll, I'll let you putter around in the garden as my wife would say Good. <laughs> and yes. we'll be back with you the show is just asked the question i am your host brian karam thanks for joining us and we will catch you next time